Ah, that was a moment, y'all. Hey, it's National Get Your Butt Back to Church season, I see. You got the memo. I'm glad. Hope you had a good summer, but I've missed you, and I'm glad you're here. Probably got some new faces in the room. Thanks for being here, too. Be sure to stop out at the Connect table if you have questions or whatever. I want to start. Is, are the screens working again? I want to start by showing you a picture. Put that picture up. This is probably my favorite picture <laughs> of all time. That boy's currently in sixth grade right now out in the hallway, so you can let him know you saw this picture. Um, man, this isn't the first time some of you have seen this picture. It's my favorite. This is my son. He's not quite two years old. He's dressed up as Batman, and he's watering the new bushes that we had just planted in our front yard. Picture's great, but that's not why it's my favorite. See, why it's my favorite isn't just because of what's happening in the picture. It's because of what was happening sort of around the picture. It's what was happening in me when I stumbled on this site and what it did for me. At the time... I felt like I was losing the battle with anxiety. You ever been there? Man, I was just, things were so heavy. I was all up in my head, overthinking things, worrying about stuff that I couldn't control. I mean, it was heavy. You felt that before, right? That sort of weight. And then I get home and I see this. I remember just laughing. Like the kind of laughing you do when you haven't laughed in a while. You know what I mean? Like you're laughing way harder than the moment actually deserves, but you're just, it's like all, it's just laughing, just laughing, you know? I remember sitting there, and this, this just did something to me, helped me catch my breath. You know, it had this way of getting me to not take myself so seriously, while at the same time reminding me how serious of a thing it is to waste your life worrying about things you can't control. Right, so there's the picture, Right? And then there's the story around the picture. There's the context, if you will. Are you tracking with me? You see, this idea of context, sort of the story around the story, is so important when it comes to understanding the scriptures, especially a book like the book of Ruth. That's the book we're going to be hanging out with today. If you're just now joining us, we've been spending the last several weeks kind of doing something different. You know, normally we, we take a passage and we kind of like hunker down in a passage and we sort of take it apart. But the last several weeks, we've been taking a look sort of at a big picture perspective of some of these more obscure books in the Old Testament, right? Trying to understand the whole thing. So we looked at Job, right, which is much more of a tragedy. Last week, we looked at Jonah, which is a comedy, Today, we get to look at a romance. Everybody say, hubba, hubba. <laughs> Looking at a romance, the book of Ruth. And y'all, this one, whoo, this one's spicy. Chapter 3, especially. Chapter 3 might be TVMA. We'll keep it PG in here, but might unpack it a bit more on the podcast if you tune in this week. But this idea of context is so important with the book of Ruth. Because on the surface... It is this sort of rich romance that will definitely get you hot under the collar. But when you consider the context, when you consider the story behind the story, like when this story was circulating and why it was written in the first place, you begin to realize that the romance is just a vehicle for a really subversive message that calls the people of God to remember what it means to be the people of God. So here's what I want to try and do this morning, all right? I want to teach through the story, like we did last week with Jonah, kind of tell you the whole thing. But then I want to take some time and actually talk about the story behind the story. 
Try to get into the historical context. I'm telling you what, if, if today doesn't pique your curiosity and fascination with the Bible, I mean, if you don't walk away going, man, there's something to this book, I don't know what will. We're going to nerd out a bit, so buckle up, all right? But first, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into it. Sound good? All right. God. In fact, hold on. Hold on, God. Everybody, do me a favor. Take your hands and just sort of open them up on your lap. Just put them there. Like that. Open them up. Sometimes you got to do something with your body that represents what you want to see happening on the inside. And so, Lord, now I'm talking to you. God, we just want to stop and, and just take a second and recognize that what we're doing here today is what people have been doing for a long time. There's something to that. People come together with all their stuff, all their stories, all their backgrounds. But they come here. They assemble in the presence of your spirit who brings things back to life to hear something from your word. Man, anything can happen. And so we pray that you do something in us today. Speak a word to us. Make us more alive. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's go back and look how the book begins. Chapter 1 of Ruth, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Let's keep verse 1 up on the screen. And the days when the judges ruled. So the story is set during the time of the judges. Sort of the pre-monarchy. This is before there were any kings in Israel. At this point in time in Israel's history, they're just a bunch of kind of loosely unified tribes. No central leadership. And it's a time of chaos. I mean, if you go and read the book of Judges, which is one book to the left, one of the phrases that comes up over and over again in the book is that in this day, people did what was right in their own eyes. So it's kind of a mess, right? And then every now and then what God would do is sort of raise up a judge, a leader, to help sort things out. And then once the trouble was over, that judge would just kind of go back into being a part of the community. So the story is set during the time of Judges. But I'm going to tell you this right now. That's not when it was written. Right, this version of the story was written much later. Okay, We'll come back to it, but just sort of file it away. Now, we're told that this family, this husband and wife, Elimelech and Naomi, and their two sons, they leave Israel because of a famine, right? Bethlehem specifically, which means house of bread. That's ironic, right? So there's a famine in the house of bread. There used to be plenty, and now there's nothing. You ever felt that way? Right? So there's a famine in the house of bread, and they move to the land of Moab. Now, this is important. This is an important detail. Moab was just to the east of Israel, right? just to the east of Israel. Now, Moab, these people there were descendants of Lot. You remember Lot? His wife turned to salt, right? He's nephew of Abraham, okay? So technically, these people are related. They're cousins, but they're not kissing cousins. They don't like each other, like at all. The Israelites and the Moabites, they did not get along. There's a feud that goes way, way back. 
And as a result, there were strict requirements in the Torah about not allowing Moabites to participate in the communal life of Israel. Something happened when Israel was coming out, out of Egypt. Remember when they were rescued and delivered? Charleston Heston was there, right? They're rescued out of Egypt, and they're traveling through the wilderness. Well, the people of Moab harassed them, like treated them badly. You can read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3. Listen to this. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. Think about that. Like they were to be perpetual outsiders. And so if you were somebody who had a Moabite in your family tree going back to 10 generations, you were supposed to be excluded from the assembly of Israel. You feeling this? Like that's strong, isn't it? But you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. Am I right? And so this family who's experiencing famine, they go and they move to the land of Moab because apparently things are okay there. There's no famine in Moab. But when they get there, Elimelech dies, and we get the sense that it's sort of sudden. He wasn't sick for a long time. It's kind of out of nowhere. Catastrophe. Right? And so Naomi's two sons, they end up taking two Moabites for their wives. Complicated. Right? They marry two Moabite women. One is named Oprah. No, Orpah. Sorry. It's just so close. Orpah and the other is Ruth, the person that the book is named after. Well, some time passes, and then both of Naomi's sons die, leaving her destitute. Right? In her day and age, this, was, this would have been a de- desperate situation. And she somehow caught word that God was providing for her people back home in Bethlehem, so she decides to go back. Because in the ancient world, women couldn't own property. Women couldn't own possessions even. A a, a man had to hold it for them. And so she's in a bad spot, right? Here I am in a foreign land. My husband's dead. My two sons are dead. Who's going to care for me? The only chance I have is to go back to Bethlehem where I'm from, and maybe some family there will take me in. So that's what she thinks she's going to do. And so before she goes, she tells her two daughters-in-law, listen, you don't have to stay with me. Your commitment to me, you don't have to keep it. Like, my time's up. I'm older. You know, you're still young. You can go back home. Maybe you can meet somebody else. Like, there's still so much life for you. And Orpah's like, shoo. I was kind of hoping you'd say that, right? I kind of figured you would, but it's just good to hear you say it, right? And she gone. She just leaves. Ruth, on the other hand, Ruth won't leave her. She will not leave her mother-in-law. She says, no. She famously says, you know, this is sort of the passage that everybody knows Ruth for. In verse 16 of chapter 1, she says, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now, where's Ruth from? Say it again. Okay, just making sure you're paying attention. But Naomi realizes that she isn't going to convince her daughter-in-law to leave her. And so she allows her to come with her. So just make sure you're sort of feeling this. Do you feel it? I mean, think about what what Ruth is doing here. Naomi's doing it because she has to. It makes the most sense, right? She's going back home to a familiar place. But what's Ruth doing? I mean, this is risky. She's moving back to a place where she's not supposed to be accepted or included. She's got so much life ahead of her still. But she is that committed to her mother-in-law. 
You see, because this book is a, is a demonstration, it's an example of this really important Jewish concept, this Hebrew word hesed. You ever heard of the word hesed? You know, it is such a rich word. It means loving kindness, unwavering commitment. What's interesting is that all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, hesed is typically a word that's only used to describe God. That God's hesed, God's unwavering commitment to his people, his loving kindness to his people. This might be the only example in the Hebrew scriptures where the word is actually ascribed to people and their kindness for each other. Sort of one of the points the book makes is, man, one of the ways we experience God's hesed is through each other. It's through our commitment and our faithfulness to each other. Are you tracking with me? And so they arrive back in Bethlehem, the house of bread, just in time for the barley harvest. All the townswomen remember Naomi. Remember, she, she grew up there. These are her people. They've been away for a while. Who knows? Maybe, maybe like 10 years or so. But when they see her, she does not look the same. Life has been hard. They recognized her. You know, she's in destitute. Like, she's got nobody. They're all gone. She walks in, and they're like, is this Naomi? Because sometimes you carry that in your body, don't you? She looks different. And they say, is this Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Call me bitter because the Lord has brought misfortune on me. You ever feel like that was your name? Call me bitter because the Lord has brought misfortune on me. Now, in order to support herself and her mother-in-law, Ruth goes to the fields during the barley harvest to glean. Gleaning was a practice that God had commanded the Israelites to put into place to take care of people who were in situations like Ruth and Naomi. Here's the idea. Farmers were not supposed to harvest the edges of their fields or the corners. They're supposed to leave them for people who were in trouble. So the gleaners would go to the edges and the corners. They also said, you're not supposed to go over your fields a second time. If you missed it the first time, leave it there. Or if you drop it, leave it there. It's for the people who need it. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Because it's God's expectation that the people who have more than they need help take care of people who don't have enough. No questions asked. You hear me? This is God's instruction to his people. So Ruth goes to take advantage of that. She's like, I'm young. Naomi's not. We need food. I'm going to go gleaning. So that's what she does. And she somehow stumbles upon the field of a man named Boaz. Y'all say Boaz. Y'all got to say like Boaz. Whoo! Boaz. So Boaz is a wealthy landowner in Bethlehem. I'm telling you what, this story's got the vibes of like pride and prejudice to it. That's what you need to feel here, okay? Everything, if you're watching on a movie, it's probably like, you know, kind of a smoky filter. Everything's like really warm and rich, right? It's like a Hallmark movie or something. They're going to meet at a Christmas tree farm. I'm just kidding. But Boaz is a wealthy landowner in Bethlehem. And based on what we're told later in the story, he's a little older than Ruth. So let's say Ruth's like maybe in her 20s. Boaz is probably up in his 40s. So he's a bit older, and he's not married. We're not really told why, but he's single, okay? But he notices Ruth. She catches his eye. He's like, whoa, who is that? Must have found her attractive. He's a little Twitter-pated. And so he calls one of his managers over. He's like, who's that? Who is that? And the manager says, well, that's the Moabite. The Moabite who came here with Naomi to help her. 
the Moabite. No name, the Moabite. How many Moabites think are in Bethlehem? Probably not very many, right? You get in the vibe, how they, the Moabite, that's her name. So they're not supposed to be there, but they are. And they're seeing her glean. And the guy can't help but say good things about her. He's like, man, we've been watching her all day. She hasn't stopped. She's been working all day. She took one break. That's it. Man, something to her. And Boaz is like, yeah, there is. <laughs> I mean, he's into her. He's intrigued. And so he goes over and he has a conversation with her. And he's just fascinated by this woman. And he says, hey, listen, Ruth, during the harvest, don't worry about gleaning anybody else's field. Just stay here. I'm going to make sure you're taken care of. Okay? Here's the thing. Like, you can get as close to the reapers as you want. Remember, the reapers would harvest the field, and then all the gleaners would come in later afterwards and sort of get what was left. But he's like, you know what? Don't wait. Just stay right behind them the whole time. And whatever they drop, take it. It's yours. You can have it. Okay? Don't go anywhere else. Make sure you stay here. I'm going to keep my eyes on you. And he says, hey, listen, if you get thirsty, look up on the hill. You see the hill over there? There's some water jars. They're for the workers, but you can use them. Help yourself if you get thirsty. And she can't believe this, the kindness here. I mean, she's a Moabite. She's a foreigner. She's a stranger. This isn't how Israelites treat Moabites. And she's sort of blown away. And she says, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you noticed me, a foreigner? Boaz replies, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you have left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Man, Boaz is not a priest or a pastor. He's a farmer. But he's got a pretty generous understanding of who the God of Israel is. Don't you agree? And so Ruth goes back to work in the field. And a little bit later, Boaz just can't stop thinking about her. So a little bit later, there's this big lunch that happens. I mean, the barley harvest was huge. It's like one of those small towns. Everybody gets involved during the harvest. It'd go on for like four months, right? And so during the middle of the day, they'd have a big lunch. People bring out food. And all the workers would come to eat. Gleaners wouldn't usually participate in this because they're gleaners. But Boaz goes and said, Ruth, come on, come, come join us for lunch. Come sit here and eat with us. And then after lunch is over, he's like, you know, all this food is going to go to waste. I'll tell you what, I'm going to have somebody pack it up, and you can take it home to your mother-in-law. We'll, we'll, we'll take it there for you. I mean, the kindness, the hesed here. Are you feeling it? Yeah? And so Ruth comes home all excited, and she shows all this to Naomi, all the leftovers, Right, all the grain she was able to get. And Naomi's like, where have you been? And Ruth's like, well, you know, I, I went down the main road. I went off to the left. I, I stumbled upon this farm at the edge of the village. It was owned by this man named Boaz. God, he was so kind. And Naomi's like, whoa, Boaz, I know him. He's actually a distant relative. Ruth, stay there. Stay in that field. I got a feeling this guy could help turn some things around for us. And so Ruth stays there throughout the whole barley harvest, like four months, four months of this. She's going and she's gleaning. And then you know how it is, right, in these movies? Like, this was probably a play. So the version we have now is like a sketch of this. And whoever's acting out, they're filling in the details. You can imagine some of these moments, right? Think about how it usually goes in sort of romance movies, right? How many times did Ruth catch Boaz stealing a glance, right? Like, maybe there's those conversations. There's this tension building. There's this obvious chemistry, though. Everybody can see it. Maybe there was like a Mr. Darcy moment. 
Remember where he squeezes his hand or whatever? It's like the fan. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Fine, whatever. But she stays there. And then one day Naomi has an idea. She devises a plan to take advantage of another social custom that God had put in place called the kinsman redeemer. The most helpful way to think about the kinsman redeemer is the rich uncle. Right? So it's like the, the guy in the family that everybody goes to when they have trouble, when they got a problem. Right? Women, women couldn't hold property or possessions, like I said. Only men could. So in a case like Naomi, with no sons, no husband, the land that was in her family, she couldn't acquire it. She would need a male relative to do that for her, sort of hold it in place. And so Naomi gets this idea to entice Boaz to be the guy who steps up and helps him out in this way. And that's chapter 3, y'all. And chapter 3 is spicy. It's TVMA. It really is. We'll keep it PG in here, like I said. But tune into the podcast later this week. We'll, uh, we'll never mind. <laughs> we got a podcast. Download the app. Check it out. But Naomi says, all right, here's what I want you to do. Take a bath. Put on some perfume. Put on your best dress. And then, here's what I want. Wait till it's dark, nighttime. And then I want you to go to the threshing floor. This is where they would go and separate the grain. Remember, this is barley harvest. They got to get it all done soon. So they would work around the clock. She's like, Boaz is probably going to be there by himself. Don't let anybody see you. Okay? Wait till he lays down and goes to sleep. And then I want you to go and uncover his feet. Lay down next to him, and then he'll tell you what to do next. Y'all, there's a whole lot of innuendos happening in here, okay? Uncover his feet is a euphemism. I'm just going to leave it right there. And so Ruth does what Naomi tells her to do. She goes in. She stays in the shadows. She's unseen. She watches him work. She waits for him to fall asleep, and then she uncovers his feet, and she lays down next to him. About midnight, Boaz wakes up. Remember, he's 40, right? Probably has to go to the bathroom. <laughs> he wakes up, and he notices a woman laying next to him. And he's like, what? I went to sleep. No woman. Now there's a woman. What is this, right? And he asks, who, who is this? Who are you? It's dark. He can't see. And she says, I'm your maidservant, Ruth. And he's like, what do you want? And then remember, remember what Boaz said to Ruth the first time. Listen to what Ruth says to him. It says, spread your wing over your maidservant, for you are a kinsman redeemer. You are a relative of my mother-in-law. You can save us. You can help us out. You can redeem our inheritance. Remember what Boaz said to her. May God cover you with his wing. You've taken refuge. And what, is, what does Ruth say? Cover us with your wing. What's the implication? How is God's, you want God to take care of me? You want God to rescue me? Guess how God's going to do that? Through you. It's not just going to fall from the sky. It's going to take a human being kind and demonstrating God's hesed. Boaz can't believe her, how committed she is. She knows why. He knows why she's doing this. But yeah, she's probably got a thing for him. But man, this is for her mother-in-law. I mean, the commitment she's shown to this woman after so much loss. And he says in verse 10, he says this, The Lord bless you. This kindness, this hesed, is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. He can't believe how committed she's been. The hesed she has shown. He agrees to do it. But he says this. He knows that there's actually another relative who's, who's in line, who's closer in relation 
to Naomi than he is, which tells me he's looked into it. He's already been thinking about this. You know? He says, here's what's going to happen. Tomorrow, I'm going to take care of all this tomorrow. I'm going to go find this guy. I'm going to let him know the situation, let him know he's next in line, and let him know about your situation. And if he's not willing to step up, I'll do it. I'm going to take care of this. And then he tells her, hey, go back to sleep. You can rest here safely. In the morning, I'll make sure you get out of here so nobody sees you. It's incredible. Naomi put her in a pretty compromising situation, hoping and expecting that Boaz would act honorably. And he does. He does. Remember, set during the time of the judges. In the time when everybody just did what they wanted to, Boaz did the right thing. It's pretty incredible, right? Think about how many amazing things happen in our world simply because people do the right thing. The thing they think everybody else should do, they stop waiting for it, and they just do it themselves. What about us? you got a room full of people here. Man, if you see it, if you feel like somebody should do something, I don't know, do it. Yeah? And so that's what happens. Chapter 4, verse 1. This is the next morning. Let me find it. Chapter 4, verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate, this is the next morning, and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and he sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I, could, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will, if you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am the next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot. So Boaz goes to the kinsman redeemer and says, Naomi's in trouble, you're next in line. Will you redeem the property? He's like, yeah, sounds good. I get all that land. Right? And then he says, well, there's a catch. You redeem the land, you get Ruth the Moabite too. And it hears he's like, ah, that doesn't sound good. That's not a good thing. That might get in the way of my estate. And he's right. He's right. He wasn't obligated to marry Ruth. He didn't have to do that. But let's say, you know, she married somebody else and they had a kid. Well, that kid would get a cut of his inheritance. You see all the messiness of this. He's like, nah. Essentially, he says this. That's a bad investment. That's a bad investment. What I love is in the story, he isn't given a name. In fact, the literal way he's referred to in the original language is more like so-and-so or what's-his-face. <laughs> like that. Essentially, so-and-so, what's-his-face, is saying that Ruth is a bad investment. You ever had a what's-his-face make you feel like you're a bad investment? Man. We all need a Boaz, don't we? We got a pretty good one. And Jesus. Man, God's word to us in Jesus is you're not a bad investment. You're not what they said about you. You're not what they did to you. You're not the sum total of all of your worst mistakes. You're a good investment. You're a good investment. Receive that word. Of course, Boaz doesn't see it this way. This is how he hoped it would go down. He's fist pumping, 
right? And right there in front of everybody, he stands up in front of everyone. He says, you know what? Not only will I step up as a kinsman redeemer, but I'm going to marry Ruth. She is not a bad investment. I mean, this is like the classic, iconic, don't put baby in a corner moment. Right there in front of everybody. I want her. I want her. Whoo! She's a good investment. But I got to show you how the story ends. You still hanging with me? Chapter 4, verse 13. Isn't it a good story? It's a good story. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, hubba hubba, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, these are the townswomen, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of who? David. Think about where this story started. In chapter 1, Naomi first comes to town, and these townswomen see her. And what does she say? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Bitter. Three chapters later, these same townswomen are around her celebrating all the new life that God has brought her way. Just like Adele said, hold on. Hold on. Because in times of great pain, it's really easy to think our story's over, isn't it? This is how it is. Don't call me. Call me Mara. Don't think your story's over. Man, have the imagination to trust that the future self, the future you has reasons for living that the current you doesn't know about yet. The best days are not behind you. I don't want to preach on the story. I want to tell the story, but I had to say that. So that's the story. Now, I told you what I want to do is tell you the story around the story. So hang with me, okay? I told you. This is like heavy stuff, Okay. I spent a lot of money on seminary for this sort of information. <laughs> now the context, all right? The book of Ruth, remember, is set during the time of the judges. But that's not when this version of the story was written or when it started to circulate, all right? I don't got time to unpack this too much. Tune into the podcast. We'll get into it some more. We got good reason to believe that a version of this story did originate very early on in Israel's history, probably around the time of David. That's why David gets mentioned, Okay. But this version was written after the exile, around the same time as the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, okay? Got to do a quick history lesson. In 586 BCE, the Babylonian Empire marched into Jerusalem, bulldozed the temple, and carried off all of the social elite back to Babylon. All of the leaders, all of the people who were in charge, all the people who could read or write, they were taken away from Israel, and everybody else was left. Imagine if you're those people who are left. Your temple's gone, your leader's gone, your national identity isn't there anymore. What are you probably going to do? You're going to sort of fold into all the other people groups who are around you, right? Because you really don't have strong sense of who you are. All your leaders are gone. They're in Babylon now, right? Well, in 539 BCE, so less than 30 years later, the Persians conquer Babylon. Now they're in charge. They're the world power. And the Persians were much more lenient than the Babylonians. And they were smarter. If you're trying to maintain an empire, trying to keep everybody where you are, that's hard to do. How about we let them go back to their homeland, have their, their own culture and identity, and we just make them pay us a lot of taxes. So that's what they did. 
They were much more lenient. They allowed people groups to go back home, practice their own religions, have their own kings even, but they were ultimately in submission to the Persian Empire. Are you tracking with me? Okay, this is important. So, this all starts to happen. King Cyrus of Persia allowed the Israelites who had been in Babylon to return to the land and reestablish themselves. This starts in 538. Okay? And this is what the books of Nehemiah and Ezra are about. They're about the rebuilding process after exile. Ezra was a high-ranking priest, and Nehemiah was a sort of governor that had come back home, and they're attempting to reestablish their cultural identity. Nehemiah rebuilds the wall around the city. Ezra comes back to help rebuild the temple, but also to reestablish the Jewish religion. Right? Now, both of these leaders do a lot of great things for the nation, but they both have a very strict and literal interpretation of the Torah, especially when it comes to the issue of intermarriage. So the belief was that they had gone into exile because they didn't stay faithful to their covenant, to Yahweh. They had assimilated into the surrounding cultures. That's why they got sent away. And so now that they're back, they want to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And they, so they get super zealous. Y'all, we're not just going to be Jewish. We're going to be super Jewish because we don't want that to happen again. And one of the things when they get back and they see all this intermarriage, they're disgusted by it. All of these Jewish people who didn't stay pure, but instead they married these foreign people. And they were grossed out by it even. I mean, it's awful. You can read about this in Nehemiah chapter 13 and Ezra 9. And it's coming from this place, we don't want to go back to exile. But they got super serious about making sure everyone was super serious. And so one of the ways they, they enforced this new zeal is they forced Israelite men who had married Moabite women to divorce them. And not only that, but if they had any kids, they had to send them away. They had to banish them. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's been 60, 70 years. Think about all of the families, all the ways this has just gotten mixed up. And so they come in with this extreme separation policy. In fact, the book of Ezra finishes with 117 names of Israelite men who had to do this, sent their wives away and their kids. It's during this time that the book of Ruth starts to circulate. How freaking gangster is that? I mean, just think about it. Shoo. You know, they, what, what this author does is takes this old story and breathes new life into it. A story from their shared past about how a Moabite woman's faithfulness saved an Israelite family. And not just any family, but the family who eventually gave us who? David, our most beloved king. I mean, she, she tells a story. The author tells a story. You know, where the foreigner isn't so foreign, where the stranger isn't so strange. They tell a story where a Moabite woman is put in place where they demonstrate God's own faithfulness, God's own hesed. Then the author of Matthew makes sure to remind us that this very Ruth is a part of Jesus' family tree. She's mentioned in the genealogy as if to remind us that this is what Jesus is about too. Ushering in a kingdom that has no outsiders, that has no hated others. And Jesus himself would go on to say at the heart of his greatest sermon, he says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Hate your outsider, hate the other, hate the foreigner. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. Think about that. 
And it's like he's saying, if you want to know if you're getting it right, if you're living in step with God's reality, be the kind of person who isn't looking for enemies. But be the kind of person who's actively turning enemies into neighbors. Y'all, the kingdom of God has no thems. Just us's. It's just us's with no thems. Are you feeling me? But what I love about this story, I promise you, I'm almost done. And then we're going to receive communion. You got nowhere to go. It's Sunday. Come on. What I love about this author, what they do is they take this hated foreign other person and they humanize them. They tell this story about people falling in love. Something we all have in common, isn't it? About heartache, about resilience, about kindness. They humanize the other. I have found that such a helpful thing to do, y'all, with the people who get under our skin. You got any of those? You got any Moabites? Got any enemies? I do. I don't like the word. I've never been the person who's had a lot of enemies, okay? It's just my sort of disposition. It's, I'm not giving myself credit, okay? I don't hold grudges. But I do got a few. And I like to think of them more as like a nemesis. Nemesis feels better. People just, God, drive me nuts. Get under my skin. And there was one that I had to spend a lot of time around. Those are the worst kind, aren't they? You can't get away from them. I spent a lot of time around them. I'm not giving you any more information. So I'm like, who is it? I want to figure out who this is. I'm not telling you anything Man, they hurt me too. I mean, there's some like there's a lot of pain I still carry from this person. But over the course of just being around each other, I did hear he did share a story one time about some significant trauma they'd experienced when they were a little kid. I mean, it's bad. It's heavy. It's hard. And so now, whenever they come up, whenever I remember something they said or did, whenever somebody brings them up, you know what I think about? Think about that kid. I pray for that kid. Because the truth is, they were that kid before they were my nemesis. And the truth is, they still are that kid, even if they don't know it. So I pray for that kid. Some of you are like, oh, that's so generous of you. They don't deserve that. I don't know. But I don't think I do it for them anyway. I think it has more to do with what God's doing with me. It's God rescuing me from something. So that's your invitation this morning. We're going to receive communion. In fact, if the servers want to go ahead and come forward. What I love about communion is, man, we all come here as equals, right? We all come to the table, you know, in in need of the same thing, God's love and grace for us, despite all of the reasons why we don't deserve it, right? And so today when you're coming, I'd love for you to think about somebody that you would call an enemy or a nemesis, somebody you have a really hard time with. And maybe what you do is you pray for them. Right here and right now, as you're holding that bread, dipped in the juice, and you think about the grace that came your way, here's what I want you to do. Pray for some grace to come their way. Pray for God, good to come into their life. Because I promise you, this is one of the ways in which God rescues us, makes us a little bigger on the inside. Are you with me? So go ahead and even right now, take a second. Let that person come to mind. Maybe even what they did. Be reminded of that.